Hello, everyone. It's April 24th, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Patricia Janik, who is an associate professor of neurology with multiple appointments at UCSF, including principal investigator at the Ernest Gallo Clinic and Research Center. Hi, Patricia. Hi. On our panel today, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Brian Derrick. Hello. And Carlos Palladini. Hello. And myself, I'm Salma Karashi. Patricia, uh, among many other things, your lab has been working on the role of basolateral amygdala in stimulus reward conditioning. Given your work and that of others on, for example, fear response, emotional modulation of memory, social behavior, attentional processing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are we at all close to an integrative theory of amygdala function that can account for this diversity, and is it useful to think on a grand unitary scale at this point? That's a great question. And uh, I definitely have an opinion, but I can't give you the, the final answer. But I think we are getting closer to that. And I think that opinion is shared by a number of people in the field. And so, so one thing that becomes clear as you listen to what you just said is the amygdala is not a region just specialized for fear, as uh, many of us thought for a long time because of the very important work done on fear conditioning. But it does seem to contribute also to various kinds of emotional learning. And so that includes the things that are, are more dear to my heart, which is looking at how we learn about uh, strongly positive events. So whether they're natural positive events, like things involving food or mating, or whether they're things that are, become pathological, like the use of drugs. So, um, so yes, I think there's a more general role of the amygdala. I think it's strongly involved in learning and regulating behavior via learning for uh, reinforcers that do have a strong emotional component. And so. What does that mean? Why should it? Why should we care if it has a strong emotional component? Things that have a strong emotional or affective component are things that are important for the animal to attend to in the environment because they would involve danger, or they would involve something very positive like locating your mate. So, so very um, things that are important for the for the uh, biological uh, life of this of the subject. One aspect of that is that uh, the amygdala is very important for um, conditioning um, attention or arousal to something that's that's critical. And so that's something that, that um, reinforces of different valences would have in common. It's very important to attend to a cue that says something bad's about to happen. It's very important to attend to a cue that says something good is about to happen. So there could be similarities in those mechanisms, and that seems to be uh, what some of the work is showing. Charlie? So are we pretty sure the amygdala is just one thing? One of the confusing aspects of it anatomically is that it consists of a bunch of different nuclei and the Connectivity isn't yeah. completely symmetric, and yeah, no, it's 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 there are something like twelve distinct nuclei, and you can make gross divisions of it into uh, areas that develop fr uh, and are more cortical-like, and areas that are more striatal-like, and so it is quite quite distinct, and so it's actually probably not that helpful for us to call it the amygdala all of the time because the inputs and outputs of the different regions are quite distinct, and I don't think we are going to be able to say that there's a particular um, computation or process that each of these nuclei do in common with one another. Maybe across some of the more cortical-like nuclei we'll be able to come up with some kind of rule, but the, I, I, just, I don't see how that will work with the more striatal-like nuclei, so uh, I think it might be useful for us to get away from calling it all just the amygdala and treating it as a one one unit, I don't know how successful that will be. <laughs> Brian, thanks. They used to call it the amygdala complex and from from the old days. And I remember, uh, uh, gee, back a long time ago, one of the investigators that was working on the amygdala with the humans asking, is it a modulatory structure or is it a structure that's actually involved with encoding of memory? 
and uh, uh, what is it? I really favor that it's both. So it seems to me, and I'm not the only one to have suggested this, um, that there can be plasticity within the amygdala, a long-term storage of that plasticity, that still is plasticity involved in communicating to other brain regions that may also be involved in learning and memory. And that really, I think, makes sense because especially the region that I've been most interested in lately, the lateral nucleus of the amygdala, where we do see some amazing evidence for plasticity upon key reward learning. It's a small region. I don't really think it has the capacity to have detailed, in-depth representations. So I think those uh, uh, the synaptic plasticity there must uh, be important for allowing neurons of the lateral amygdala to communicate with other brain areas where more detailed representations can be stored and used and maintained. Of course, there are all kinds of cortical interactions with the lateral and basolateral amygdala uh, and other interactions like stradal, etc. How about just reminding us what Q-reward learning is and what the basic observation is about the amygdala neuron responses during those kinds of tasks. Sure. So so we've been interested in the very simple association between an, a cue in the environment that initially has no particular significance to an animal and that relationship of that cue to a reward that it is temporarily paired with. And so this is just basic Pavlovian conditioning. When a cue comes to predict the delivery or the presence of a reward, then later the animal will show a conditioned response to that cue. And so we had the idea, and others have had the idea as well, that the amygdala will be important for that kind of cue-reward association, and a lot of that based on fear conditioning work, where cue-shock associations seem to be uh, made. It seems to be a critical site for the plasticity underlying cue-shock associations. And so what we did, we were particularly interested in the acquisition of a cue-reward association and how the amygdala may contribute to that. Various lesion studies and recording studies after training have had already given us an idea that that was a good place to look. And so we uh, trained animals in a task where they uh, responded at a nose poke operandum, which is just a hole in the wall, they stick their nose in and then out, and after they did that, on half of the trials randomly, they would be reinforced with a cue followed by a reward. And once they learned that the cue predicted the reward, they would travel to the sucrose port where they received sucrose reward delivery. Uh, upon hearing the cue after learning. And so we saw neurons in the lateral nucleus of the amygdala that develop a sharp phasic increase in spike activity to the cue upon learning. And we also observed some synaptic plasticity at those neurons, excitatory synaptic plasticity, an increase in the synaptic plasticity after learning. So isn't it kind of a mix? I mean, it seems to me there's an instrumental component. So if it was just the cute, the nose poke followed by reward, we'd call that a straight-ahead instrumental task. And because you've put this stimulus in the middle, there's a kind of Pavlovian twist. So, so it is it's a mix. It's an instrumental task with a Pavlovian twist. Yeah, yeah, it is a mix. And so, you know, we can go back and, and do the experiment differently to isolate the instrumental versus Pavlovian component. But what we have done, because we're recording from those neurons, we can ask... Do the neurons respond to the cue? So is it really the cue reward association that's critical for them changing their response profile? Or are they also responding to when the animal makes the instrumental response? And we um, thought that it could be likely that also there would be a big population of neurons responding to the instrumental response because there is evidence that uh, instrumental learning is sensitive to lesions of that area. But we did not see many neural responses tied to the animal's making the operant response or learning that operant responses result in 
in reward. The the neural responses seem tied to the cue specifically. So, so uh, what what exactly is the difference between Pavlovian conditioning and instrumental conditioning? Because in terms of associations made in the brain, I don't, I don't know if I see the real difference between those two types of things. It seems more like a definition imposed upon by the experimenter that it's just the way the experiment is designed, one an animal has to poke its nose or press a lever and the other one the animal you know, just has to look up or, or hear a tone or something like that. So, so I think people would conceive of classical conditioning as being more elementary than instrumental. I'm not sure if that's true, but I think that would be the conception. So in classical conditioning, the animal doesn't have to do anything. So the experimenter or the real world is presenting the animal with contiguous, temporally contiguous cues and reinforcers. And then a, a conditioned response may or may not develop, and then you can measure that. And then, and then that's, that's the whole procedure. But with instrumental responding, the animal or the person actually has to produce an action that results in some kind of outcome. So, so you can see already there's a, a layer of uh, complexity, and you might even imagine that a nervous system would have to be more complex to learn to do something for a given result because you have to, somehow the nervous system has to analyze the result. Is that good or bad, and do I want to repeat what I just did to get that, that result again? People have conceived of classical conditioning as being even more reflex-like, more automatic, less uh, conscious, to, to speak, you know, grossly and anthropomorphizing and, and such. Um, I, I don't know if any of that's true. In principle, we wouldn't necessarily require a response at all in classical conditioning. It's just that in an experiment, we wouldn't be able to tell that it happened. That's right. There'd be nothing. Right, so in principle, if I always learn that the door's going to close after the light goes on, then I am basically being conditioned to, to know that those two stimuli are connected exactly. to each other, exactly. even if I never respond to them in any way. That's right. And a lot of the kinds of responses that people have classically measured in Pavlovian conditioning experiments have been reflex-like responses, changes in blood pressure, changes in heart rate, salivation, things of this nature. So I've that Pavlov himself used a reward as the <laughs> unconditioned <laughs> stimulus, yeah. and thereby muddying the whole thing That's up. <laughs> But he, what he was studying was really cue-reward learning, like absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So the the thing that uh, we are interested in that that maybe makes it more complicated than the way people typically think of Pavlovian conditioning is we want to see how this conditioning influences an action that Mm -hmm. the animal makes. So in our particular case, it would be an action to go get the reward. So So you're saying salivation is just a is, is, is doesn't involve consciousness or something and, like that. And I'm not going to say that an action does either, <laughs> but it, it's, it, you can see that structures involved in voluntary action we might think of differently than we think of those involved in yeah. conditioned reflexes. So that, that and that's goes, where the basal ganglia hopefully comes into Yeah, play. so that kind of goes to my original question. In terms of the actual brain making associations, for example, the lateral amygdala, um, uh, it still has to make an association between some kind of cue or, or an unconditioned reward and some kind of response, whether it's salivation or voluntary action, um, you still have to make this association. That's, and, and so at that level, I don't really see the difference between the two types so of So in classical conditioning, the association doesn't happen with the response in that, in that way. So it's the two cues are becoming associated, and then they can lead to a response. So if the unconditioned stimulus initially always produced salivation, and now you have a cue, that now, after conditioning, produces salivation. Uh, that's, that salivation itself is not part of the association. 
it's just part of the output. So now the CS can direct that output. That might be a different way. So I think, uh, yeah, uh, certainly it, from a, I mean, from a behavioral semantic. point of view, it makes sense whether the whether the behavior is a consequence of the stimulus mm -hmm. or exactly. is a yeah. required yeah. in order to Different get the stimulus. But if you're, I think what Carlos is getting at is something that that eventually has to be faced, and that is for those of us who are thinking about neurons that are implementing these algorithms in the brain, the, a movement gets represented by a pattern of neuronal activity. A sensory stimulus gets represented by a pattern of neuronal activity. You have an image of movement. You have an image of, of sensation. Those get associated with each other in, these, in the networks by synaptic plasticity. And so basically at that level, Mm -hmm. You're just learning associations between patterns of neurons mm -hmm. firing, and some neurons firing represent movement. Some represent sensory stimulus. Maybe mm -hmm. sometimes they represent incentives, or mm -hmm. even you know more abstract psychological things that I mm -hmm. don't even know the name of. And then, but to but to the neurons, those are all the same. Mm -hmm. And so one mechanism could will them all. Yes, <laughs> one mechanism. One to mechanism. Rule them all. To rule them. Well, it, it depends on where you are in the brain. So so I think. The amygdala is specialized for associations between stimuli. And then based on those associations, different movements may or may not happen. And that's based on their projections elsewhere. So if it's a reflex like freezing, maybe that's based on projections through the central nucleus of the amygdala and some brainstem stuff. But if instead it's going to retrieve a reward that's based on interacting with a system that maybe we think is more involved in voluntary response selection, which is one way I might describe what the basal ganglia do. And so it's out, outputs through, through there. Now you can get instrumental learning, just learning to press a lever for a reward without an amygdala. So there's a way to learn to make an action for a reinforcer without having the amygdala. So you can begin to make associations along, along those so routes. Th does that mean that Q-reward conditioning cannot happen if you don't have an amygdala? Is that true? I, I wouldn't go so far to say that. Some aspects mm -hmm. of it cannot happen. Ah. And so, so I actually, when you, I think when you learn associations between stimuli, and uh, this was first, I'm not, now I'm blocking on the name of a famous person a, a long time ago, Konorsky, who um, said, you know, when you, when you make conditions associations, you actually are learning a number of different things. And so, you know, one way to think about the lateral amygdala and the basal lateral amygdala, the way, one way people have been thinking about them recently is it's very important for uh, an animal or a person learning the significance of the outcome. And so a cue being related to the significance or the value, value of the outcome yeah. uh, may be different than learning an association between a cue and uh, some sensory attributes of that outcome. So there, there can be different specific things about these stimuli that are dis that you can pull apart and different parts of the brain participate in those representations that, you know, based on the behavior seem like a whole, but based on all kinds of lesion work and very interesting, clever behavioral studies, people began to tease those apart. Before we get to the basal ganglia, which I know that there's some chomping at the bit to talk about, I wanted to sort of talk more generally about reward-seeking behavior. And so in these studies of amygdala that you, you just talked about, you used a natural uh, stimulus, a, a sucrose reward. So what are the distinctions, behaviorally and physiologically, between the effects of natural reward versus drugs of abuse? So, for example, do they show similar reinstatement profiles? And for that matter, at the synaptic level, the plasticity that you talked about, are, are those profiles comparable? 
there's always a great case made for the common pathway between um, drugs and natural rewards, but what are the caveats mm -hmm. as you see them? I think there certainly is a common pathway, but there obviously must be differences. And in animal work, not from our lab, but from other labs, that's been shown to me most strongly, being interested in the learning aspects of this, that a cue associated with cocaine, for instance, can have a more powerful effect on behavior after abstinence for much longer than a cue that predicts something good the animal likes to eat. In this case, it was sweetened condensed milk. I think this was from Bert Weiss's work. So, so the, the strength of the conditioning seems um, much greater in the case, in this case, for cocaine versus sweetened condensed milk. The memory lasts much, much longer. So why is that? And that, that's a fascinating question. Is it because uh, a drug is just more reinforcing, so a stronger hedonic signal? That's not very uh, satisfying. Is it because the pharmacological properties of the drug interact with the neural systems that underlie the actual learning of Q-reward associations, whether that's via some alteration in dopamine signaling or something else? You know, we, we, don't, we don't know this. Is it, is it because there's an unconditioned change in the dopamine signal? That sort of would be the incentive sensitization hypothesis that contributes to the potency of cues associated with drugs making them more potent than those associated with natural rewards. Uh, we, don't, we don't know this yet. In our own work, we would love to move next to drugs. Probably we would go to alcohol. We do a lot of work with alcohol. Uh, the nice thing about working with natural reward and alcohol is you have richer behavior that you can observe in the animal because in my procedure I talked about earlier, the animal heard a cue and then upon hearing the cue traveled to the port to actually acquire the, the drug, to add, the reward, to drink the sucrose. If we were using IV cocaine, they wouldn't have to do that. They'd hear the cue and just stand stand still. We could design the experiment such that they had to go somewhere to get the infusion, or we could measure autonomic nervous system changes. Um, but it becomes more complicated in that sense. What's what's would you you just said earlier uh, the word incentive and we say incentive and reward. I, I'm not really clear on what an incentive is. It, it, an incentive is something that, that something good that you want, something that can get you to do something, something that can motivate you. So this is like a drive in the old-fashioned whole terminology. Uh, it's close to that, yeah. It's something that can, can motivate you because you can change your motivation based on changing your drive, if that makes sense. Let's call drive hunger. If you're more hungry, you may have more motivation to go get the food than if you're less hungry. So an incentive is basically a something reward that there. I haven't got yet. It's something out there. And, and, and a cue that's associated with it becomes a conditioned incentive. So Great. I know these terms are bandied about. Well, it definitely becomes better if you know what the words are. I have a question about the anatomy. And I was, I was really um, taken aback at the latency of these responses. Um, I mean, the first thing that enters my mind is, and it goes back to Joe Ledoux's envision of the sort of the somewhat parallel pathways of sensory information through uh, a shorter thalamolimbic route and the more involved cortical processing. And, uh, and there's all sorts of things start, all these flags start going up that have to do with, we uh, <laughs> were talking about Hull at Freud, and that is the primacy of affect and, and how these more rapid responses are probably more, uh, occur with more biologically relevant stimuli. Mm -hmm. And so the thalamolimbic, rather than the thalamocorticolimbic input. 
seems to rapidly assess biological stimuli, biologically relevant stimuli, or biologically relevant rewards. So my, my concern is, is that this thalamolimbic route seems to be a more important route, and, uh, and that any kind of change in it, like fear is forever, is what Joe Ledoux had said, and that this low road, well, as he refers to it, is, is uh, problematic in that sense. Now, we were talking about social aggression, and I know that I believe it was Liz Gould who had an fMRI study showing that when people are shown uh, faces of people of a different race, you know, or someone in an outgroup, and it's flashed very quickly, and it's subliminally perceived, and it can activate the amygdala. And it, for instance, with someone who's black, if a white face is shown, it could cause an activation. Someone's white, the outgroup would be a, someone with a, who's black, and their face is shown. But that, that can change, and that over time, people who were raised in a more multicultural area, like a large urban area, or especially those who are in, for instance, interracial relationships, that kind of response disappeared. So even though it is the low road, and it seems almost hardwired, and that may be the road that is involved with drug addiction, that was my first question, mm -hmm. do you think that's the road involved with drug addiction? And two, it, is there, would there be a chance to modify that? Can, can that behavior be modified, or will, will drug addicts always be relegated to craving the drug and going to 12-step meetings? You just gave us some hope that there is modification of those kinds of pathways that can be seen in humans, so, so that's great. But yeah, that's the difficulty. So this kind of learning may be so, may be so strong, how can we overcome it? Uh, can anyone ever unlearn? And of course, we don't think anymore that the extinction of a response involves unlearning, but it's learning a new response that competes for expression. Uh, people are looking uh, very uh, deeply into whether one can use approaches like extinction therapies uh, to reduce responses to drug-associated cues. And so there are behavioral mechanisms people are interested in looking at, pharmacological mechanisms, and there is currently a lot of neuroscience research focused along those lines, and we're in fact looking at some of those, those types of things. So uh, we've been trying different behavioral um, therapies in rats to get them to uh, uh, relapse less to alcohol. So, so we have a, a procedure where rats are trained to lever press for alcohol in a particular context. So it's like the bar, a particular smell there, a particular kind of floor, particular color lights on the wall, and they, they go into the bar every day for uh, a few months and drink. Then we extinguish that response, so we put them in a different context. So it's not the same bar, it's a different smell, different texture floor, different visual cues. And now when they go to press the lever to get drops of alcohol, none comes out. And so over you know, a week, two weeks, they learned to, re to respond less. So you'd say, oh great, we've extinguished the drug-seeking response success. But the problem is that extinction is very sensitive to context. So if you put the animal right back in the bar environment, they will immediately run over to the lever and start hammering away looking for the alcohol. So which memory is expressed, the original drug-seeking memory or the extinction memory, depends on context. And that's been a huge problem with behavioral therapies in humans, extinction therapy, both for drug addiction and for phobias and things like that. So one thing we tried, uh, taking a cue from the fear literature, is extinguishing animals in multiple contexts. So they, they drink in a particular context for a long time, then they're placed into one of three different contexts that vary every day for a few weeks. So they learn in multiple different contexts that pressing the lever doesn't provide alcohol. And then when we test them by putting them back in the original bar context, the alcohol context, they don't respond so much. 
So you can you can do things behaviorally that may alter somehow the retrieval of the memory or the ability of certain cues in the environment, in this case the context, to retrieve that memory. And so we're very interested in why and how that happens. And that that's a pretty active area of neuroscience research. So how useful are aversive stimuli in that regard um, as a shaping measure in, in extinction studies? Uh, specifically for drug seeking, yeah, for uh, for ethanol, not 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 very, not necessarily. Yeah, imagine so in real world situations, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so ant abuse, which makes uh, people sick if they drink, has not been a successful overall therapy for most people who who drink. Uh, and uh, some wonderful studies have come out looking at cocaine self administration in rats, showing that. Uh, at least a subgroup of animals who are very motivated to lever press to get intravenous cocaine are not put off by direct shock or by cues that have been associated with shock. So, so in fact, it may be one of the uh, phenotypes, behavioral phenotypes we can use to say we have a somewhat better model of addiction in the rat than many of our models of addiction in the rat if they will continue to search for drug even though they get an aversive consequence. That's actually one of the definitions of addiction is that you continue to pursue drugs even at the cost of uh, things that are bad for you. Right, right. So you've done some work on uh, dorsal striatum. So the ventral striatum has historically been considered an interface between the limbic and motor systems that supports motivational learning and the dorsal as having more sensory motor function that relates to stimulus response pairing. Do you consider this a valid distinction, especially in the context of reward-seeking behavior? So I think in the last uh, years, especially the last five years, but maybe the last 10 years, there have been a lot of advances on uh, behavioral studies in animals that have really uh, added to our conception of striatum. So uh, the nucleus accumbens does seem important for uh, learning to make responses for reward, potentially, maybe via a more general role in motivation. The dorsal striatum, um, people have been dividing into a more dorsal lateral region and a more medial region and found very good evidence that those two regions have different functions when animals learn to make a response for reward. So this is all instrumental conditioning. And it seems that the medial dorsal striatum, striatum is required for response outcome learning. and. The idea that people have is that as an animal learns to make a response for a particular outcome, it initially is supported by response outcome learning, having some idea of what you're going after in your head. The outcome is, is something, in, a representation held in, held in the brain and held in the nervous system. And then over time, with repetition, uh, learning can become more habitual. So one can respond for a particular outcome without necessarily uh, holding the representation of that outcome in mind, and that's our common notion of habitual responding. And the idea was that learning moves or uh, activates more strongly first more medial dorsal striatal regions and then more lateral dorsal striatal regions, and whether there's really this sort of movement, etc., I think that's up for grabs, but certainly there's a strong requirement for medial dorsal striatum early in learning, and in some situations a strong requirement for the lateral dorsal striatum for instrumental responding uh, after a lot of training has happened. So so already just thinking about the dorsal striatum, it's not just sensory motor, etc. The medial dorsal striatum receives all kinds of uh, rich inputs that um, come from medial prefrontal cortex and potentially even amygdala inputs uh, go to the especially medial dorsal striatum. Um, so, so I don't think you can drop it out of the reward uh, circuitry and so more and more people are looking to dorsal striatum rather than just the loop involving the VTA and the accumbens. 
uh, in that in that process. So I wonder if you would sort of mention how we got to the place where we thought that reinforcement was the sole possession of the VTA and the mm-hmm. nucleus accumbens, mm-hmm. because we definitely got there in a small number of steps. Yeah, I, I think there are a few pieces to that puzzle. One that, that's very interesting is that the shell region of the nucleus accumbens is one in which animals will self-administer substances directly into. So things like amphetamine, um, NMDA antagonists, uh, I think keflins, cocaine, these are all self-administered directly into the shell region of the accumbens. So there's something special about the shell as opposed to the core and other uh, more dorsal striatal regions. Some drugs are also self-administered directly into the VTA, including alcohol. Uh, so so there, there's something, there is something special about the shell, and I'm, I'm not sure what it is. It's a particular set of inputs and outputs that make it sensitive to direct reinforcing effects of So drugs. does that really mean that other areas like substantia nigra, that animals will not self-administer drugs in there, or they will not self-administer drugs in, in the dorsal striatum, is that? As far as I know, I, I might be wrong about that, but as far as I know, that, that's the case. Other regions have popped up for some drugs before. There is a report of cocaine self-administration into the medial prefrontal cortex. There's a report of uh, some kind of opioid administration into the CA3 region or something of the hippocampus. So there are selected um, additional sites. And there, isn't there sort of a correspondence with electrical self-stimulation? So the also electrical self-stimulation in the nucleus accumbens, but not so in the dorsal striatum and likewise in the substantia nigra and So, so, so the, the electrical stimulation question is complicated, and I don't know all the details of that, but if you map where animals will electrically stimulate, it does seem to map onto projections uh, from VTA to accumbens. But, but the easiest way to get an animal to self-stimulate is to have your stimulation electrode in the medial forebrain bundle, which is carrying lots of different fibers going in both directions. Mm-hmm. So there have been discussions for many, many years about what is the actual substrate whereby animals will uh, self-stimulate, provide electrical stimulation to their own brain. And because there are non-myelinated fibers and myelinated fibers, so fibers that could uh, potentially be dopaminergic fibers that maybe are GABAergic and going the other way. And so it's, there's a big... So it's possible we haven't yet identified the most effective reward signal in the brain, mm-hmm. uh, which might be in the medial forebrain bundle that have nothing to do with dopamine. Mm. It's possible. I, mean, I wouldn't <laughs> want to discount dopamine entirely. But, so, so the, the, and dopamine leads us to the second uh, route to focusing on the accumbens, which uh, happened via um, early studies looking at 6-hydroxydopamine lesions of terminals into the accumbens in cocaine self-administration. So animals with 6-hydroxydopamine lesions into the accumbens had reduced uh, self-administration of cocaine. And uh, in a number of studies, dopaminergic antagonists were more more effective in the accumbens than dorsal striatal regions in reducing self-administration of cocaine. Interestingly, sometimes they're effective in regions of the amygdala, but that's going backwards, so let's keep going forwards and talking about the strain. There is a dopamine projection to the amygdala. There is. Yes, there is. There is. Yeah, there's also one to the hippocampus, and what I think is interesting is that when you talk about addiction and uh, the severity of addiction, you're talking about the length of, of how long an animal will go to get that reward, or how long that uh, how long it takes to extinguish. The, the, the persistence of learning over time seems to be an important part. And what's sort of interesting in the other structures where they've looked at synaptic plasticity in behaving animals, 
is that novelty is its own reward, and animals that 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 explore novel environments will show an LTP that's more extended in its duration. And uh, Julieta Fry and uh, a number of other investigators have isolated dopamine as being the important mm -hmm. feature of that. And what's interesting is when the dopamine receptors are blocked during these kinds of uh, rewarding behaviors when LTP is induced, the LTP doesn't last as long. Mm -hmm. It's when the dopamine's on board where it will last for several weeks. Mm -hmm. So dopamine appears to be crucial for maintaining, not initiating the memory trace initially, but for somehow maintaining it for a longer period of time. So I think the key, the dopamine being involved directly or indirectly in terms of reward mm -hmm. and learning mm -hmm. is, is, is really sort of the interesting part. Mm -hmm. What well, are some of the other candidates, though, in, in your mind, in terms of uh, uh, potential, poten potentially other reward sites besides the medial forebrain bundle? Is there anything that... Uh, I mean, the shell is the is what I've been thinking about the most, is the shell region of, of the nucleus accumbens, since there's a direct activating effect of drugs there on, on reward. Yeah, so, uh, actually, there's been, the, the, you just outlined all the good reasons for thinking that the VTA and then shell of the nucleus accumbens are a sort of reward system that uses dopamine. Yet, how do we... Uh, how should we then view what you were saying earlier about the dorsal striatum and about the amygdala and about all these other places? If Does a Cummins yeah. have a lock on this reward thing or not? So, so I don't know if it has a lock on it, but maybe there's some reward signal mediated by that region, but these regions are all interconnected. And so it, certain kinds of learning, in, in our view, still must occur if you're going to learn to access a drug if stimuli in the environment and context are going to be associated with those drug effects. And that's not all happening in the shell of the accumbens. It's happening in a lot of other regions. So somehow the shell is connected with other brain areas that are involved in this kind of learning. That, that will be one guess, that the initial direct pharmacological effect of some of these drugs initiates some kind of change in the shell that is the reinforcing signal for learning in other in other structures. So people have some ideas about how the shell can reach, for instance, other areas of the striatum, and you may have come across these cascading loop ideas where shell output to, say, VTA then allows VTA dopaminergic inputs to influence the core, and core output to, say, substantia nigra then allows uh, substantial nigra dopamine inputs to influence dorsal striatum and so on. So that's just thinking about bouncing back and forth between striatal regions of dopaminergic cell groups. But of course there are interactions probably at other levels like cortical levels because we know about corticostriatal loops and there's also talk across corticostriatal loops. Not They're not entirely separate. So, so I think the interactions happen at the level of networks of neurons and circuits. Well, that's such an interesting idea. It sort of implies that if we were recording from a VTA neuron and a dopamine neuron and parse compact at the same time and there was a reward, was just the VTA thing. neurons would fire first, yeah. and then after some substantial delay we'd see the dopamine neuron and parse compact and fire. I wonder, is there any, There's, anybody talked about the latencies I, in those two places? No, I know of no evidence to support that, but that would be great to Wouldn't do, just to, just to see. Is there really any evidence for these kinds of you know, spirals? That would be fantastic. So then that dopamine signal becomes a reward predictor signal. It isn't really tied closely to the reward. And the farther away from the VTA you get, in some sense, the more cognitive the reward would be. That is, it would have been processed by all of mm -hmm. these other mm -hmm. things. Because the, one of the strange things about the dopamine neuron is that it isn't really a reward signal. 
rewarding stimuli often don't make responses mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. dopamine cells and mm -hmm. parts compact, only when they are unexpected. And, and so, uh, yeah. there's, and that's an oddity that, that if you're picturing, as many people do in their diagrams, like the reward sensory pathway, whatever yeah. that would be, yep. the one that comes from sucrose or something, going straight to the dopamine neurons and making them fire, then you get yourself into a mess. You, pretty soon, you you find yourself in a non sequitur and you can't go on because if the reward signal goes directly to the dopamine cell, it should always be there regardless and it isn't always there regardless. Yep. And where does it come from in the first place? Yes. Yet, all drugs of abuse are abusive because they increase levels of dopamine. And dopamine itself can be abused, I think. So uh, Maybe that's happening in the shell of the gummits. Maybe they may yeah. only there, perhaps. Yeah. So maybe the VTA dopamine cells are actually rewarding in of themselves. Uh -huh. In which case, according to the, the Schultz paradigm, there should be no shift from the reward itself to, to the conditioned mm -hmm. stimulus. Do they do that? I don't know. <laughs> because almost all of the monkey stuff from Schultz's lab has been in the substantia nigra parts compact. Yeah. And some has been a VTA. Yeah, has been some. Do they report any differences between the two mm, places? No. I, I think I sometimes they've said they've found the reward-sensitive cells more frequently and as they move more medially. But, but, but there, there hasn't... I mean, those monkeys are very well trained. Yes. And you often don't necessarily uh, see examples where you observe a cell as it's a transitioning from responding to the reward to the cue. You don't necessarily always see that trial by trial. You see some averages. I'm not sure if there's something special about the amount of training they've had as, as to whether uh, one would or wouldn't see responses to rewards after conditioning in, in VTA. So, so in the in the rat, in you know, pilot studies that, that we've conducted uh, with, enough, with about 12 days of training, the response to the reward doesn't go away for us when we record in the VTA, very, very medial, actually. Well, but how about the latencies, though? Again, going back to the amygdala, the latencies to, to the responses are very short. So mm -hmm. You said 70 to 100 mm -hmm. milliseconds. Mm -hmm. How does that compare to the VTA response to reward? So they've generally been reported as longer, more 70 to 200 sort of range. I may be getting the numbers wrong, but the latency in lateral amygdala of, of sensory responses is faster than that reported in a putative dopamine neurons in VTA and substantia nigra, right. which is very interesting to me because those two regions interact. So right. how are they interacting in learning processes? There's certainly no thalamic inputs that could, to the dopamine neurons that are comparable to what you see in the amygdala. There's no direct access to sensory information. I know, you know, Pete, Pete, uh, if you're hearing this, you think uh, you think there is, but superior uh, that would be something very special from the superior collection. <laughs> yes, so there's an extra step there, so so that can explain the delay. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how how these different brain regions that we conceive of as playing a role in some of these kinds of learning. How do they work together, and what could we learn if we were actually recording in more than one at the same time, merely looking at latencies? If we blocked plasticity in one but not the other. Does that block the behavior? Does it block the neural changes? So I actually think looking at VTA uh, in parallel with the amygdala would be very interesting to do. Well, thanks for being with us. This is great. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks, everyone.